Welcome to another episode of Viatorian Voices, Conversations on the Way. This is pre-associate Dan Masterton from Vocation Ministry, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, our guest is Viatorian Associate Mary Finks. Mary was one of the first associates in the U.S., making her initial commitment with the Charter Group in 1999. Mary is a longtime parishioner and music minister at St. Patrick Church, a Viatorian parish in Kankakee, Illinois. We previously heard from Mary in episode 17 about music ministry, drawing on her ministry as a cantor. Today, we tap into her professional experience. Mary is a retired registered nurse who worked for many years with Hospice of Kankakee Valley, including serving as its director of clinical services. Her Viatorian spirituality, especially walking with people whose society accounts of little importance, is a major part of how she views this work as a ministry. I started by asking her about what it was like when association first began in the U.S. Enjoy the conversation. Well, it was a long time ago. <laughs> it, was, it really was a long time ago. It's almost, almost 25 years yeah. that I've been an associate. And honestly, the process before we became associates was about seven years. It really was about seven years. So when John Olenworth says it was a long time, it was a long time. And, and that's understandable. It was a huge change for the Viatorians to formalize association in this in this area. And um, I was invited to become, well, John and I were both invited to become associates by George O'Shea. And John graciously declined. I, it's very shocking for anyone who knows John, not at all. Um, but I, I felt like it was something I really was called to do. At that time, it, it was because of my connection to uh, St. Pat's Parish and liturgy. I was re- very involved in liturgy and music at St. Pat's at the time. So that's really why I was, I became an associate. I, I felt called to service to the Holy Altar. I mean, of course I've looked back, but I think it's, it was a very good choice for me and for the Viatorians because they have used me and abused me. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, but it's been, it's been a very joyful relationship, you know, so much give and take. I've learned so much, and hopefully people have learned from me, too. Uh, It was later when I became a hospice nurse, and I did that, um, I think, in 2008, maybe. I had always worked in women's health, either in OB, labor and delivery, or in a gynae office. Uh, And I had just was feeling I needed a change. I needed needed something more professionally, so I decided to leave went to work for Hospice Kanky Valley, which is now Uplifted Care. And I've never regretted it. Talk about uh, care for those of little importance. Often, you will find yourself at the bedside alone with a dying person. Where is everybody? Where, you know, where's their family? Where is, and, and not, I'm, not, I'm not putting down families at all because most of my bedside care was at the Veterans Home in Mantino. And, you know, a lot of those men and women are from all over the state and their families are all over the country. So it is difficult, but it's a very deeply spiritual time to be with somebody when they leave this world. Much like it's very spiritual to be with somebody when they enter the world. I've always said that I'm back in the same, I'm in the same process, only it's reversed. (laughs) It's reversed, you know, you go through a heavy period of, there's a lot of anticipation and people know that the people that are dying, the person that's dying is, Feeling changes, just like a very pregnant woman is beginning to feel changes. 
You go through a very intense period right before the big event called transition in labor and in death. And then there's some, sometimes there's some very messy episodes that happen. And then it happens, birth or death. And so it's, it's very, very similar. It really is similar. So could you help us kind of reset some of the main phrases that are used in hospice care settings? Comfort care, palliative care, there's hospice care. Could you help us differentiate a little bit between um, the components that go into those care decisions right. and how you care um, for someone? Palliative care, basically, um, and it, it kind of has a different shape and uh, title in different parts of the country and certainly in different parts of the world. But palliative care around here, um, is care that's directed at people that have life-limiting conditions, um, and they have a symptom burden. They have symptoms that are happening that need help to be managed. It's life-limiting, so you have a shortened lifespan, but certainly not uh, six months or less. While with hospice, you have to have a definite terminal diagnosis or life-limiting condition, but have an expected life expectancy of six months or less. That is the big thing. And currently, palliative care, you can still be doing curative treatment and receive palliative care. There are a couple of exceptions for this, but currently, to be on hospice, you have to forego uh, curative treatment. You have accepted your terminality. You have accepted that you're going to just take care of symptoms as much as you can and live your life, do what you want to do, be with who you want to be, and maybe enjoy what's left of life rather than treating something aggressively. When we all know that sometimes the treatment is worse worse than the disease. And so for me, um, hospice is a very natural progression of life, regardless of what you're dying from. We're all gonna face death, we're all gonna face it. So that's the difference. There are uh, veterans, certain people that are associated with uh, the VA can have hospice and palliative care at the same time. Not every VA, not every veteran, but um, certain people can. And then kids under 18, actually under 21, if they start in hospice before 18, they can go to 21 and receive palliative and hospice care at the same time. So in terms of the healthcare itself, what are some of the interventions that are available to someone who accepts hospice care that wouldn't be used by someone who's still seeking curative treatments and trying to shake a disease that they they might be able to beat. When you're on hospice care, it's not like drugs are handed out freely. It's not that they're handed out freely, but there's less concern about life-changing things that happen to you when you take narcotics or opioids. We're not worried anymore about somebody becoming addicted. you're not going to live long enough to become addicted. Opioids are a, a more openly used, maybe, intervention. And it's used, interestingly, everyone thinks of morphine. And that is the most common opioid we use for comfort. And it's used for shortness of breath or dyspnea and um, pain. And it's very effective for both. All the medications, the medications are focused a little bit differently when you're on hospice. You know, when somebody's uh, still in curative care or palliative care or, you know, still in oncology, whatever kind of care they're in. Meds are managed just a little bit differently. We're, we aren't so worried about, not that we're not worried about side effects, absolutely we're worried about side effects, but you're not worried about too much of it. Uh, it's okay to take a little bit more uh, than somebody that's not dying. And, and certainly 
hospice never wants to hasten someone's death, but they don't want to prolong their suffering either. We really want to do what they want to do and how they want to manage it. And I, I've always told families too, when you sign up for hospice, you and the person, the patient, are now in the driver's seat. You tell us what you want, you tell us what you don't want. Whatever you want to do, whatever you don't want to do. You know, within reason, that's what we're going to do. The other benefit of hospice is that all the durable medical equipment, like a bed, oxygen, a commode, a wheelchair, whatever, is all supplied by the hospice. The family doesn't have to arrange for that. You don't have that separate bill. Everything's billed through your hospice benefit. And so any medication needed for the patient to, for comfort and anything that they're still using um, maybe for their disease process, like maybe somebody's end-stage heart, and so they might have a lot of problem with edema and swelling. We're still going to pay for their diuretics. We're still going to pay for some of their comfort meds, meds that are going to reduce their symptoms. It's different things for different diseases, disease process. It opens up a structure that can bring an ease and a a simplicity to the care. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. The other big benefit that people, you don't really think about it. When the person dies, you just need to be with them. That's it. We're going to come. We're going to call the coroner. We're going to call the doctor. We're going to do whatever needs to be. We're going to give them a bath. We're going to help you clean up whatever needs to be cleaned up when that time comes. Uh, But that's really a family time. It really is a family time. So obviously it's a really emotionally complex and fraught time for a patient and for their family. So maybe first talk about some of the challenges that are commonly you know, confronted in these moments of decision and in this period of hospice care, then maybe also some of the hidden blessings or kind of surprising hopes and joys that pop up. Well, you know, it's funny. It's when people are at their end. I'm talking just about the patient. Now, when the patient is at their end, they usually have a good sense that something's happening. And a lot of times they want to know what's going to happen. How is this going to go? What, what, and you can't really tell them for sure, but you can tell them what you've seen and how, how, other peop- how other people have experienced it. Honestly, the patient usually is the least of your concerns. I know that sounds really strange, but it's, it's honestly the truth. You're, you're just taking care of that patient's, usually, their physical burden, their physical pains, whatever it is. Occasionally, they'll have someone that's really on hospice, and they are not ready to go. They don't want to go. They they know they're dying, but they don't want to go. That is a that is a very difficult patient to take care of. There isn't enough medication in the world to treat that anxiety and that restlessness when somebody who is not willing to go is dying. It, it's very, very stressful. And it's very stressful for the family, especially if that patient is home, because it's exhausting. That often that is, you know, there's some spiritual issue or deep emotional issue that is unresolved, and hopefully that person can find their way through that. I always, I have always said that when you've been with somebody that's taken longer than you would think to die, I always think, I wonder if that's purgatory. You know what I mean? I wonder if they're, they're standing, they're standing and facing their God right then and there. And for us, it's weeks and weeks and weeks. For them, they're on God's time. It could be a minute, you know? Um, So I think it's, it's, interesting it's interesting interesting so um and then for families families are sometimes really really difficult and there have been times when now now i know that 
maybe I could have said it better. Maybe I could have handled it better. But sometimes you just want to shake adult children and shake them by the shoulders and say, this isn't about you. This is about whoever. It's about your mom. It's about your dad. It's about your grandma. Get over it. Get over it. Get on with it. But they're going through their own. Griefing is very hard. It's very hard. Very hard. But it's it causes stress for the person laying in the bed. It causes stress when they know that Susie or Johnny isn't happy or is not ready to let go. Um, and if there's angst in the family, maybe two of the kids are fighting or that person, that, especially a parent, that parent knows it. That, that parent knows that that's going on and they would like to see resolution. You know, I, I, that's true for men and women, you know, as they're dying, moms and dads, that there's, they know. So, so maybe in that vein, as you've seen various families go through this process and people pass away, what are some things that you would hope healthy people, young people, or, you know, children of older parents, what types of questions or considerations would you hope people would address while they're young and healthier, while their parents are still right. younger and healthier? Right. What kinds of things do you want people to try to confront a little bit? At a least? little bit. Yeah. And, and it is hard to confront that when you're 18 and graduating from high school yes. that I'm going to die someday. Well, yes, you are. <laughs> I promise you, you are. But sometimes I think it's really good to have an idea of how you want to be treated when when your death is is here, when you're facing your death. And you know, when, you, when there's an accident and they die very quickly, there's it's done. It's done. You didn't get to pick. But for sure, you should pick whether you want to be an organ donor or not. You know, I mean, there are things that young people could, could really think about that really will help, you know, other people and maybe even help their family to know that they've given life to somebody else. But I think for people that are facing the loss of an elderly, elderly person, I think it's really good to remember what does that person want? How does that person want to be treated? And maybe why do you want to be treated that way? You know, some a lot of times older people will say, I want everything done. What do you mean you want everything done? What, what does that mean to you? And often they'll say, I want them to be comfortable. I want them to not suffer. And that is every, to me, that's everything. That's everything you could ask for. It does not mean though, that they want to be on a ventilator. It does not mean they want CPR, you know. And, and that's the big thing to me is that people need to know that a very small fraction of people survive CPR, especially if they're elderly and frail. We don't survive CPR. And if you do survive, you're probably gonna have some deficits. Does that mean nobody survives? Absolutely not, absolutely not. And so, you know, it, it's a tough call to whether you want CPR or not. Yeah, when yeah. there's so much nuance and complexity, you might not come to a conclusion in an earlier thought of it, but you can mm -hmm. at least kind of exactly. get the ball rolling exactly. and start to think yeah. about it. And it, it's always a joke that at holiday time, Thanksgiving time and Christmas time, when everybody's together around the table, let's talk about end-of-life care. But really, it's a good it's a good thing to talk about. It is a good thing to talk about. And personally, I know that. I know that full well. John died a year and a half ago right in that bedroom. And had we not talked about it at, but you know when you're a hospice nurse you talk about that you talk about death and dying you talk about it you see what people go through do you want to go through this should you go through with this that's always my question should you go through with this and people die from all kinds of diseases people die from dementia there is no perfect answer and that's why yeah. you have to ask over and over yeah. and over and mm -hmm. think again and again yeah so maybe one last question if you were to speak with young people who are 
trying to study and live out social justice among their family and friends in their community, what sort of advice or questions would you want them to have on their mind as they think about how to care for someone who is elderly and maybe at the end of their life? A couple of things. What does that person want? That's why you need to have the conversation before grandma or grandpa or mom or dad can't talk anymore or your sister can't talk anymore. You need, you need to have that conversation. What, how do you want to be treated? Where do you want to be when it's time for you to go? You know, do you want to be in the hospital with, you know, not strangers, but people that's not family taking care of you? Or the other thing is that regardless of where that the person that's on hospice care or the person that's dying, maybe they're not on hospice care, but the person that's dying, they're still that person they always were. They're still in there. They're still in there. And we need to always remember that. And for dying patients, they say that hearing is the last thing to go. And I always tell fam- I always tell family members, you know, even when they they are no longer responding to us around them, they still hear us. They still know we're there. Hold their hand if they want, if they they're not pulling away from you. Talk to them. Talk to them the way you always talk to them. And if you always said, God dad, why why are you saying that? Then that's what you should say to them. You know, I don't I, you should be real with them. You should be caring. You should be who you are with them. The relationship, while it has changed a little bit, you're still you and they are still there, them inside of there. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We thank Mary Finks for her time and for living out God's invitation to accompany people and their families with end-of-life care. We pray God will grant clarity of heart and peace to people with serious illness and all their loved ones, caregivers, and healthcare providers walking with them through it. To learn more about the Viatorians or invite vocational accompaniment, email us at vocations at viatorians.com or DM us on social media at ViatorianUSA. On behalf of Brother John and the Viatorian community, I'm pre-associate Dan Masterton. Venerable Louis Curbs, inspire us. St. Vider, pray for us. Adored and loved be Jesus. Mm-hmm.